Good morning, I'm glad to see you all made it here even with our summer scheduled time change. Um, it can be hard to keep up with, but you made it. Well done. So I'm about to do something that I do maybe once or twice a year because I know it makes us Episcopalians very uncomfortable. And that is to just ask a question that I do expect a response to. So brace yourselves and uh, try your best, okay? You can do it. <laughs> All right, can anyone tell me what liturgical season we are currently in? That's coming up. Okay, Pentecost was the correct answer for that question, but ordinary time's not wrong. Um, what color vestments do you typically see on Pentecost Sunday? Red. Red, good job. And then what I was gonna ask was, but you guys jumped, jumped ahead of me, so good job. You're really predicting all my moves now. Um, can, can anyone tell me what it's called when the vestments we wear are green? Ordinary, Ordinary time, good job, yes. So. For other liturgical seasons throughout our year, we wear the corresponding color throughout that season. So if you think of um, Advent, we do blue here. Some congregations do purple. For Lent, we do purple and wear it throughout the season. And then for Easter, we wear white throughout all 50 days of Easter. So doesn't it seem a little odd that we don't continue wearing red for the season of Pentecost? Um, and Pentecost is in this time that's called ordinary time, which again, may seem counterintuitive. It's unfamiliar to us in terms of how the season goes. Good job, y'all are done answering questions. You can, you can, you can breathe again. Um, so knowing the thought and the intention that goes into every liturgical decision that's made in our dear Episcopal Church, I very much doubt that this was an oversight. I think it's probably intentional. So every other week, the young adults gather for Theology on Tap, and we discuss a theological topic. This past week, we talked about the Holy Spirit, since it's the season of Pentecost. I started by simply asking everyone, what's the first thing you think of when I say Holy Spirit? So take just a second. What's the first image that comes to mind? First thing you think of when you hear Holy Spirit? Good, doves, fire. All good stuff. Some of the things we came up with were, we talked about the dove and the fire, but the answers ranged to all kinds of things. Um, Ellie's here, she said, a spiritual chill, which I really liked. Wit is also here, he said community. There's, we talked about the breeze that nudges you in a certain direction, a descending dove, a blazing fire, an intellectual journey, or even your very breath. It's something you encounter in your heart, in your mind, and in your body, and in your soul. The point is the Holy Spirit is so many things. The presence of the Holy Spirit is both completely shocking, utterly baffling, and entirely extraordinary. It's also quotidian, every day. Its presence is common to us, almost mundane. The presence of the Holy Spirit is also entirely ordinary. And so here we are liturgically in the season of Pentecost, also known as ordinary time, right where the ordinary and the extraordinary converge and descend upon us, 
blazing like fire, but gentle as a dove. Today's gospel lesson points to this kind of confluence of the ordinary and the extraordinary through a few different followers of Jesus. The first character in our story is Matthew, the tax collector. Now, you may know this already if you're a person that grew up around the church and thinking about the Bible, but tax collectors in this time had really terrible reputations. They would often collect more than was necessary and keep the difference for themselves, stealing from their neighbors and accumulating wealth. Even the honest ones were kind of seen as traitors in their communities because they had aligned themselves with the oppressors, the Romans. That's why tax collectors are always lumped in with sinners in the scriptures because they were seen as abhorrent. But, we all, but all we know about this Matthew, this tax collector here is that Jesus walks up to him, tells him, follow me. And without hesitation, Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. Now we can make some guesses about Matthew here. I would guess that he probably hated being a tax collector. The burden of collecting unfair taxes under the Roman Empire from his neighbors and his friends, people he probably grew up alongside, that most likely weighed heavily upon him. Maybe he was desperate for a way out, looking for something different in his life. So when Jesus comes along and offers him an off-ramp, he doesn't have to hesitate. It's exactly what he's been praying for. Then he throws a party and invites the only people who would probably associate themselves with him, other tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus, of course. The Pharisees are keeping an eye on Jesus and they don't like this. They just truly don't get it. They cannot understand what kind of person claims to be holy and righteous but then dines and parties with the worst kinds of people in their eyes. Jesus answers them and sets us up for the second half of this gospel. To the Pharisees who are complaining about his presence at this dinner, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus has enough love and compassion to truly see people to their core. He sees the tax collectors as people who are desperate and hurting, sick and in need of a healer. And he even sees the Pharisees here as people who simply don't understand, not that they're being judgmental or hurtful, but that they just don't understand. While he's saying these things were introduced to our second desperate character of the gospel, a leader in the synagogue comes to find Jesus because his daughter has died. Now, remember, the synagogue is the place of the Pharisees, where the Pharisees are in charge. It was bold for a leader to run to Jesus because, as we know, the leaders were not very supportive of Jesus' ministry. But out of total and complete desperation, this leader runs to Jesus to find him. And also remember, his daughter had already died. It wasn't that she was sick and he was trying to find someone to save her life in this crisis. She had died. But this father ran straight to Jesus 
believing that Jesus could raise her from the dead. That would have been unheard of, absurd. It was incredibly bold and a desperate choice. Jesus, without hesitation, gets up and goes with this leader. And on his way, we meet the third desperate character in this gospel lesson. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And because of the beliefs of that culture at the time, that also would have meant that she was completely ostracized from her community and her neighbors for that 12 years. So she has both physical and social suffering. She reaches out, touches Jesus's cloak because somehow she knows that that will make her well. Jesus turns and sees her, truly sees her. All of her suffering and her isolation and all of her desperation. And he tells her that her faith has made her well. Now, what we should not take from this text is that somehow wellness or the state of your body is based on the amount of faith that you have. I don't believe that's how God operates. What we should look at is what kind of acts of faith are done here in this gospel lesson. Matthew gets up and responds to a call. The synagogue leader runs to find Jesus. The bleeding woman reaches out a hand. None of these characters hesitate. They are all driven by desperation in completely different ways. But they all participate in an act of faith that is full of hope and promise. And again, looking at these moments of faith, they look pretty ordinary. Matthew follows the guy who told him to follow him. The synagogue leader asks a somewhat disreputable teacher to come with him. The woman reaches out and touches a cloak. These things sound ordinary. But of course, we know that they are completely extraordinary because of who is involved. It's the presence of God with us that makes these acts extraordinary. The faithful actors are faithful, yes, of course. But their stories would have been long forgotten if it weren't for the presence of God making their ordinary acts of desperation extraordinary. So here we find ourselves at the convergence of the ordinary and the extraordinary and the grace that is entirely a gift from God is that we don't have to do anything at all to make our daily lives extraordinary. Only God's presence can do that. So continue to reach out a hand in faith and rest assured that your ordinary act of faith is made extraordinary simply because God is present in it, listening to you, seeing you fully, and responding. Amen.